Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Our uh, guest pastor from uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, going to come up today and going to be sharing God's Word with us. As was mentioned, come on up here, Jim. As was mentioned, uh, Gary showed a picture, and uh, my not-so-clever disguise, I was working with the second and third graders, and of course, they're smart enough to realize that probably was me. Um, but you know, there's always a lingering doubt, you know, <laughs> like the Easter Bunny, you know. And uh, so they were all saying, no, you're, you're Pastor Jim, you're not, Pastor, you're not Professor Pete. I said, no, I'm Professor Pete. Now, one very little astute girl, Brian and Jackie's little granddaughter, who's going into second grade, I believe, Aubrey says, well, if you're, past, if you're, if you're not Pastor Jim, how come you're wearing his watch? <laughs> so if our guest pastor this morning tries to pass himself off as the real Pastor Jim Shamaria, you might want to check out his watch. Let's pray, okay? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just lift up uh, Jim now as he brings a message to us. Might your words be heard, might our hearts be open to them, and might we live by them. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks. Everybody, as said, my name is Jim. I send you greetings from Michigan, the Great Lakes State. Uh, I've been a pastor there for a few years. Uh, But before that, I know many of you may be aware of this, I (laughs) grew up in this church. I'm actually uh, his son, so uh, that kind of happened. So I spent... My whole childhood uh, growing up here in this church is always kind of an interesting dynamic. Uh, in Michigan, everybody knows me as Pastor Jim, the adult, college graduate, all of that. When I come back here, uh, <laughs> I'm surrounded by people who know me as Pastor Jimmy, or not even Pastor Jimmy, Jimmy, the annoying junior higher and annoying high schooler, <laughs> annoying college student. <laughs> so you guys know, you guys know me. There's no fooling fooling you. But uh, it's great to be back. Uh, as I come back here every time, uh, I remember this church as the church that played such a strong role in shaping me. And I can remember so many uh, people that have had such a strong role in individuals, whether they're Sunday school teachers or youth group leaders and people who encouraged me and rebuked me and uh, really shaped me into the person I am today. So always so good to be back at this church that's been so influential in my life. Uh, so even though I've been in Michigan for the last few years, I still keep up to date on uh, what's going on here in Seattle. I read the newspaper and see everybody on Facebook and Twitter and all of that. And so there was a time uh, when I was seeing the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth with the 90 degree weather. I was wondering if there was going to be any Seattle left for me to come visit in July, but you guys made it. You made it through. You're on the other side now. <laughs> so that's, that's good. Okay, <laughs> if you have a Bible... Uh, Turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Today we're going to talk about a guy named Gideon, uh, who is one of the judges of Israel. Uh, And so we're going to work through this really in three parts. We're going to start by doing a little bit of background work uh, to set up the context of who, why Gideon is is needed in the first place. Uh, Then we're going to talk about the call of Gideon. uh, When God says to Gideon, you're going to you're going to do this. We're going to break that down. And then third, we're going to look just briefly at some of the first actions in Gideon's life. And so the story of Gideon is great. It's uh, many chapters long, so go home and read it. But we're just going to work through the first part uh, this morning. So let's start at the beginning, huh? 
Gideon chapter, or uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Let's stop uh, right there. If you're new to the Bible or maybe just uh, forgot, uh, the book of Judges uh, is really a transitionary book. As you read through the story, the narrative of the Old Testament, the book of Judges has this really kind of in-betweeny feel to it. So the people of Israel uh, were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God, and God came down, and he rescued them. And he began this process of bringing them out of slavery and into this new life in the promised land. And so they journey from Egypt, and they eventually get to the promised land. But the actual taking and possessing of that land doesn't quite go well, doesn't go as God intended. And so Israel falls into uh, this really uh, rut, really, where they're in this process of uh, leaving God, going after the, the regional local gods of the area that they're living. Uh, that leads them to a state of oppression where these people uh, would overrun them and overrule them. And so for years they go into this state of oppression until they eventually cry out to God. God sends them a deliverer. That deliverer delivers them, hence the name, the deliverer. Uh, and eventually they are in this place of rest and then it all happens over again. This is called the judge's cycle and you read about it time and time again in this book. So this is exactly what's happening here uh, in the book of Judges. It says again, right? That again word is key. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the Midianites. Okay, so verse two. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkey. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord. For help. Now, this description of what's going on here, uh, it's maybe not too fearsome for us. We read, okay, bummer. But for a person in the ancient Near East, uh, what's happening here would be absolutely terrifying. Uh, for us, uh, a shortage of crops means that avocados cost a little bit more at QFC, right? Uh, we have an infrastructure in this country uh, that you can have a stretch of 90 degree heat and all the crops can die and you can still survive. You can still eat uh, because we can keep things cold and things can last longer. In the times of the Bible, the world of the Bible, uh, this was not the case. The people were directly dependent on their land. And so what the land produced is what they ate. And if the land didn't produce, <laughs> they didn't eat. Okay. So what's going on here, what the Midianites are doing, uh, are, it seems to be going out of their way uh, to just get rid of all of the food sources for the Israelites, seemingly just for the sake of doing so. There's a description in there that says they came up like a swarm of locusts. You may be familiar with uh, the locust swarm. A locust is uh, basically a big old grasshopper, uh, usually an independent animal, a solitary animal, but every now and then migratory uh, things, that's a scientific term, migratory things happen, uh, and all of the locusts come together in this swarm and go into a land. So uh, a locust can eat its own weight in green food 
every single day. Okay, so fresh fruit, it eats its own weight. If a locust swarm uh, weighed a mass of uh, 50,000 pounds, which is a, a normal estimate for a locust swarm, that means every single day those locusts are eating 50,000 pounds of green food. <laughs> Uh, so if you've seen pictures of what uh, a land looks like after a locust plague has gone through, it's absolutely devastated. And this is the description that is used for the Midianites. When they come into the land, the land is left looking like the locusts have just destroyed every single thing that's left. And so what do the Israelites do? They hide. Uh, they go into, they leave their homes, they leave their villages, they go into the mountains, they go into the hills to hide from these Midianites and these other eastern people on their mighty war camels, uh, and they, uh, they hide from them. Uh, so, verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to God, uh, because, uh, because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said this. Now, stop before we get there. How long has it been since the Midianites have been doing this to the Israelites? Seven years. It took seven years before the Israelites said, hey, uh, maybe we should cry out to God about this. So right away, uh, we kind of know what the relationship is between Israel and the God uh, that claims or that they claim to be their God. So after seven years, they finally say, all right, let's see what God has to say about this. Uh, So verse eight, he sends them a prophet who says, Uh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hands of all your oppressors. I drove them uh, before you, or drove them from, from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So God just says, okay, listen. I did this for you. I showed you that I'm your God. I showed you that I'm on your team. I brought you out of oppression. I brought you into this land. I told you, just don't worship these gods, but you didn't. So this is the mess that you're in. Okay, so that's the setup. That's where we are. That's uh, the scene uh, before Gideon comes on uh, to the scene, right? Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites, this absolutely terrifying thing. They have no food. Uh, They finally cry out to God. Verse 11, uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abzerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Okay, uh, if you've studied the book of Gideon or the life of, <laughs> I keep saying the book, the life of Gideon before, uh, you may be aware of the irony of what's going on here. This is a picture of people uh, threshing wheat. It looks like it's, uh, I don't know where it is, but they're threshing wheat here. So the idea is uh, that when you harvest your your wheat, you put it all together, you run over it with oxen or some other big animals, and it breaks the kernel from the stalk, from from the wheat chaff. And then what you do is you take a pitchfork and you throw the whole thing up in the air. The wind blows away the stuff that is dead and useless, and what you have left is some nice tasty kernels of oat or wheat or whatever it is uh, laying on the ground, and you go home with that wheat. Uh, now, in order for the wind to do its thing, it's really important that a, uh, a threshing floor where grain would be threshed would be on a high open place, right? Because you want the wind to come through and do this thing. So these are very open areas, very open spaces up high. Uh, the next picture we have here uh, is a wine press. This is an ancient wine press, probably not from the time of Gideon. But essentially what you have here uh, are two levels uh, of this stone 
uh, basin, really. And so what you do is you put uh, the grapes in the upper basin. Then you'd go all Lucille Ball on them, right, and stomp uh, the grapes until the juice starts to flow from the upper basin down into the lower basin. And then you have uh, your juice, which you'd make into wine. Uh, since grapes are fruit and they are perishable, uh, it's very important that wine presses are in covered, hidden areas where the grapes can remain cool. Okay, So these two locations are drastically different. Uh, a threshing floor needs to be high and open, where it actually works. <laughs> a wine press needs to be low and covered, where there's not a lot of wind. Uh, Gideon just like the rest of his compatriots, just like the rest of the Israelites, has become so terrified by the Midianites that he's willing to try threshing his grain in this low, dark, covered area. And that's going to take a lot more work, and it's probably not going to work very well. But uh, he's so afraid of these people that he's threshing his wheat in this low uh, wine press. And so uh, here's the humor in verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, So here's a guy who's so afraid of the Midianites that he's willing to do his wheat in the wine press. And this angel calls him a mighty warrior. Uh, I imagine that he's maybe questioning, did he hear this right? Uh, but there's some humor here, but there's also some foreshadowing of, of what's going to happen. Now check this out, verse 13. This is really important for where we're going. Uh, but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon asked this question uh, that if you're anything like me, <laughs> You've asked in the past, if the Lord is with us, if the Lord is good and powerful and present, then why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to them? Why is this happening to us? Right? We've asked that question. It's okay that we've asked that question. This is what Gideon is saying. If God is in fact who he says he is, why are these things happening? And then uh, he goes on to say, look, this is what my ancestors, this is what our ancestors told us, that God brought us out of Egypt, that God saved us. So there's some important things that are happening here. One, Gideon uh, does not think that God is present in his daily life, right? He's saying, where is God? He's saying, God is not here. Yet at the same time, he is also affirming that at some point in history, God has in fact worked on behalf of his people. In other words, what Gideon is believing here is that God, this God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is this God who has performed this great national event, right, where he saved the people, this one-time event of saving, bringing them out of Egypt. But then, perhaps he's abandoned, perhaps he's forgotten, but while he did this thing, he's not doing these things. Okay, so this is Gideon's mindset. That God is real, God exists, God has saved, God did perform this great national salvation event. But on a real daily, nuts and bolts, in and out, mundane level, 
God is not present. Where is God? Okay? This is Gideon's mindset. Uh, Verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love that. Uh, Gideon goes, God, where are you? If you say that you're here, why are all these things happening? And God's response is simply, go. You're going to do something. He doesn't answer him. He doesn't tell him why. He doesn't explain anything. All he does is say, go, you are going to do some things. Perhaps what's going on here is God is going to answer Gideon's question through some events rather than speaking a word. So if you go on in the story, and we're not going to read it all. Uh, if you go on to the story, Gideon is still not convinced that this is God uh, telling him to do these things. This is a very typical Gideon uh, response. He doesn't quite believe, and so he has God prove it to him. Uh, there's some fire involved, which apparently if somebody doesn't believe in God, just you know, make something catch on fire, and that will, that'll do it. That happens all the time in the Bible. Uh, but some things burn up. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I believe it. I'm going to do it. Okay? Now, uh, jump down to verse 25. Okay? So that's the calling of Gideon. Now we're going to look at some of the first action, one of the first actions of Gideon's life. We're going to end with this. Verse 25, he says this. That same night, so the same night that God called Gideon and said, you're going to do this. You're going to save your people from the Midianites. On the same night, the Lord said to him, Take a second bowl from your father's herd, from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bowl as a burnt offering. Okay, there's a lot here. <laughs> And what we just learned is really going to influence what's happening in this, these short little verses. Okay? So before Gideon can go and save his people from the Midianites, this great action that he is called to, the first thing he has to do is he has to go put his own house in order. He's not going first to the Midianite camp. He's first going to his father's household, and he's going to turn things around there. Now, when it says father's household, uh, don't think he's like going up to Everett to go see his dad, you know, that he sees every couple months. Uh, in the ancient world, family units lived together, okay? So when it says your family, your father's household, what the angel of the Lord is telling him is go to your own house, okay? So where your father lived is where you lived. The things that your father ate, you ate. The things that your father worshipped, you worshipped, okay? So all of this stuff that's happening at Gideon's father's household, this is his own household. This is his own setting. Okay, so the angel Lord tells him to go to his father's household and to do what? To tear down the bales and the Asher poles. Here's a couple pictures of Baal. I basically wanted to show you this because I really like his hat. Um, it's like pre-elf. Uh, but these are some ancient Baal statues. Baal, uh, Baal is actually just a general term that means like father or king. Uh, but it came to be known as the name of the, the head god of the area. Uh, you read about Baals all throughout the Old Testament, or at least the early parts of the Old Testament. Baal was like the king of the regional gods there. Uh, Baal had a, a helper, a female god called Asherah. Uh, and so that's when we read about the Asherah pole. She was worshipped with these uh, long wooden or stone poles uh, that would be used to worship her. And so Baal and Asherah are two gods of the region. Now, what's unique or what's significant about this 
that both of these gods, Baal and Asherah, are fertility gods. We think of fertility gods as gods that help people to have babies, and that was part of it. But fertility gods also were gods that helped crops grow, right? The fertility of the land. It also, uh, these were gods who helped rain to fall, in their opinion. These are gods uh, that helped animals to have babies. So fertility gods, uh, at their core, were basically the way and the means that the ancient Near people uh, would have daily provisions provided for them, right? If Baal and Asherah were happy, the crops would grow. If Baal and Asherah were happy, the animals would reproduce. If Baal and Asherah were happy, things would be good in the land and you would have stuff to eat and you'd be able to go on with your life, okay? So Baal and Asherah were responsible for the daily needs of people in, in, this, in this land. So, <laughs> let's start to connect the dots here. Gideon goes to his father's household, which is also Gideon's household. And he is told, before you save your people from the Midianites, the first thing that you have to do is chop down these idols. You have to chop down the Asherah. You have to knock down the altar to Baal. So what is this telling us here? (laughs) Yes, I like that. Gideon's household was relying on the Baals and the Asherahs to provide for their daily needs. So why is that significant? What did we just hear Gideon say a few minutes ago? When God appears to him, Gideon says, God, if you are here, why are you not providing for us? Then he goes home, and his family is worshiping these other gods in which they are hoping will provide for them. So Gideon is affirming that God is here, wondering where God is, and then worshiping these other idols that are going to provide for him. We see how this is a little bit messed up. And we see why Gideon first has to take care of his own household before he can move out and conquer the Midianites on behalf of God. I just want to park here. If we continue on in the story, uh, Gideon does, in fact, tear down the altars. Uh, He tears down the altar of Baal, and in its place, he builds an altar to God. So he takes down something that's destructive, and he builds up in its place something that is good and beautiful. That's a whole other sermon. Gary, you got that one? Okay. Uh, But he he tears down the altar, he builds up a new one, uh, and eventually he does go and, in fact, uh, destroy or have victory over the Midianites. Spoiler alert. Sorry if you were going to read that. Uh, But I just want to park here and I just want to reflect and I want to take this story and kind of turn it in on ourselves as we look at this guy, Gideon, who says, God, I believe in you. I believe that you did this thing. I believe that you exist, but I don't believe that you're doing anything now, yet I worship these other gods. I worship these idols. A lot of times when we think about idolatry, especially idolatry of the people in the ancient Near East, we kind of think of it as an all-or-nothing kind of gig, right? Uh, You either worship God or you worship idols. What we learn from Gideon is that's not necessarily the case. Uh, Sometimes you can worship God and you can worship idols, and that's exactly what he's doing. So we reflect on that. The second thing I want to kind of think about here, uh, what is the point of worshiping these idols? When Gideon worships these idols, it's not just about putting this thing in, in front of God. Well, that's bad on its own. 
But the reason that he has these idols and the reason that he makes the right sacrifices and does all the right things that he's supposed to do for the idols is because Gideon and his father are attempting to gain control over their world, right? If you do the right number of prayers, if you punch the right buttons, if you do the right things, then these gods are going to bring rain. So Gideon, by worship of these gods, is really simply trying to take control into his own hands and into his own possession. Yet he says, but God, where are you? <laughs> Our ancestors said you did this. We affirm that you're real, but where are you? Gideon uh, has slipped into a trap that I think a lot of us can perhaps find ourselves in, uh, where uh, he's worshiping this. And this. So up on the screen here, uh, maybe this is a way to think about it. It's possible to trust God with your life and not trust God in your life. Right? So Gideon trusted that God had saved his people and God does exist. But then when it comes to the actual living, uh, breathing world, God is nowhere to be found. And Gideon has put his trust not in God, but in the Baals. In the Asherahs. So it's possible to trust God with your life, but not in your life. Maybe when we bring that forward a few thousand years, a few thousand miles away, and we look at ourselves sitting here in these pews in this room, maybe for some of us, we would affirm if someone asks us that, yes, we were saved. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus. He has saved us from our sins, and we're going to go to heaven someday. And we have this trusting of God with our lives. But if we're honest, and if we let the word soak into us, perhaps there are areas, an area, multiple areas, uh, in which we're not trusting God in our life. Uh, Maybe like Gideon, it's a matter of control. Uh, Maybe like Gideon, uh, we have this desire to take control away from God and bring it onto ourselves. And so we work at our job so hard so we can get money, which is not a bad thing. But the reason that we want to work and the reason that we want to have money is because we want to make sure that we're in control of our life. And so our work is not just about doing things at work and being productive and adding to society and being with the people around you or doing something that is good. But work becomes about control. Making money becomes about controlling your own life. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody go quit their job and just hope for the best, uh, right? We have to be be common sense. But what is your mindset when it comes to these things, when it comes to money, when it comes to time, when it comes to the stuff that you do in your life? Why are you doing these things? Why are we doing these things? Are we doing them so that we can make sure that we have control in this area? Because if that's the case, perhaps we're more like Gideon than we want to believe. Uh, I know that when I allow these words to sink in and to reflect, uh, I find myself in this place too. Trusting God with my life, but sometimes missing that step of trusting God in my life. Maybe you're at that place right now where you're asking that question that Gideon asked. God, if you are God, you say you are God, you've done what God's done, but where are you now? Maybe the story of Gideon is running parallel with your story right now. The first thing that Gideon had to do is go and turn his house upside down. 
First thing that Gideon had to do is go and defeat those things that were wrestling control away from God before anything can happen. Now, we are people that live under this beautiful, overpowering sense of grace. God is not keeping a scorecard. God is not waiting for you to do enough good things before he does a good thing back to you. But I think there's a reality in that we can experience that beauty and that grace in a more powerful way as we begin to open ourselves up to the way that God can move. So, uh, Gary, if you guys want to come, they're going to sing a song as we finish, a song that I think a lot of us are familiar with, the song, I Surrender All. <laughs> and we sing that song, uh, but maybe this morning, uh, as we do and as we stand and sing together, uh, maybe this is a good time for us to reflect. Maybe it's a good time for us to think. Maybe it's a good time for us to let this story of Gideon shine a deep, penetrating light into our souls that sometimes it may be hard for us to look at. Are there areas in your life in which you have trusted God with your life, but in the daily, in the in your life, uh, maybe there's some missing missing parts there. So we're going to sing this song together, and uh, let's... For us to be here today, and thank you so much for coming today and sharing in this service with us. Remember, next Sunday at 10 o'clock, coffee at 9.30. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's good for us to come together, and we've been reminded this morning from the Word of God. That when we come together on Sunday morning as a church gathered, it's good for us to reflect. It's good for us to take account. It's good for us, as Jim has mentioned this morning, as we live in this age of grace and the grace that God has lavished upon us. He also has asked us to live lives that are worthy of this calling, that reflect him to our world. So as we close this service today, I too would like to ask you and myself that we would reflect, we would consider God's word, We would allow the word we've heard today and the word that we hear each week to be useful for teaching, rebuking if needed, correcting if needed, and training in righteousness so that we will be equipped this week for every good work that God will allow you to participate in as his steward and his ambassador in the week to come. God bless you for coming today, and I pray God's blessing upon you in the week to come. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard your word this morning. And, Lord, we pray once again as we leave this place that we will not leave your words here, that we will allow you both to be in our life, be with our life, and that our life, as we are told, is wrapped up in you completely. And, Father, in our human condition, in our imperfections, you have enabled us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives pleasing to you. And so I pray today that the song we have just sung, that we have not just sung it, but we have considered it. We surrender our lives to you. If there is an area of our life, if there is one aspect of our life that anyone is holding back from you purposely, they know you as Savior. They desire to live a life that pleases you, but they also desire to hold on to something that they know does not please you. I pray they may let go of that this day. And they would leave that here. And they would take your word with them and allow you to be the Lord of their life in all aspects. We love you. We walk with you. 
And we leave this place rejoicing in the hope of our salvation and in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that you have showered upon us in the love of Jesus Christ. And I also pray if there be one person here today who does not know Christ as Savior, they would open their heart to the gospel and the good news that Jesus died for them, paid for their sins, rose from the dead, and offers them eternal life. In Christ our Savior's name, we pray together. Amen.